If you haven't listened to part one and part two of our series on chick tracts, I highly recommend that you do that first. And just a heads up, this episode contains some content around sexual abuse. On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, urban legends, conspiracy theories, hoaxes, and crazes, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. We're covering very delicate subject here, a very heavy subject. We pray now for the listener of this tape, Lord, that you will open their minds, their understanding. They'll know what we're trying to say to them, Lord, and we block all the forces of darkness who would hinder this tape, Lord, and the message involved. For your glory, Lord. Amen. There are about 60 million, that's 60 million, comic books published every month in the United States. What a wonderful thing this would be if they were reading something worthwhile. But they're not reading anything constructive. They're reading stories devoted to adultery, to sexual perversion, to horror, to the most despicable of crimes. The corpse that came to dinner. Ten cents at your neighborhood newsstand. When Jack Chick returned from the South Pacific after serving in World War II, he entered an America already whipped up into a moral panic about juvenile delinquency, but more specifically, about the dangers of comic books. The source of this new paranoia came from a German-American psychologist named Dr. Frederick Wortham, whose interview in a 1948 issue of Collier's magazine called Horror in the Nursery kicked off a crusade against this favorite pastime of the youth. This article was then compounded by a symposium hosted by Dr. Wortham, who gave a speech titled The Psychopathy of Comic Books. In it, he confidently asserted that young readers were more abnormally sexually aggressive and criminally deviant than those who did not read comic books. And across the nation, priests, pastors, teachers, and parents encouraged thousands of children to gather as many comic books as they could find and burn them all to ashes. A few years later, in 1954, Dr. Wortham published his manifesto with the title Seduction of the Innocent. Even FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover warned that, quote, a comic book which is replete with the lurid and the macabre, which ridicules decency and honesty, may corrupt susceptible children. 
In response to the public's upswell of concern, the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency concluded that, quote, this nation cannot afford the calculated risk involved in the continued mass dissemination of crime and horror comic books to children. Upstanding Americans would agree that something had to be done, and though free speech laws prevented an all-out ban, guidelines were put in place for publishers to follow, lest they run into more controversy that could hurt their sales. These suggestions said that, quote, All scenes of horror, excessive bloodshed, gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism, and masochism shall not be permitted. It banned, quote, lurid, unsavory, gruesome illustrations, as well as any sexually suggestive clothing and all suggestions of illegal drug use. In addition, quote, policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. And there could be no criminals presented to readers as sympathetic. Lastly, it prohibited showing, quote, sadistic joy in seeing other people punished over and over again. Chick tracts, though they claim to use their more controversial elements to encourage the exact opposite of juvenile delinquency, actually break this code in almost every way. They are certainly perverse and lurid, gory and gruesome, sadistic and masochistic, definitely show sexually suggestive clothing and illegal drug use. They do not show reverence to policemen, judges, government officials, and the respected institutions that, in Jack's world, all seem to be part of the evil New World Order satanic antichrist human sacrificing cult. And oftentimes, it is the criminals who are presented as most sympathetic, saved in the end, making it into heaven at the last minute. And though they'd deny it, it seems to me that Chick Publications was guilty of taking, quote, sadistic joy in seeing other people punished over and over again, as those who were not washed in the blood of Christ are shown burning in hell over and over again with a very clear, I told you so, vibe. By the time Jack started his own comic company, these guidelines were still in place, and Jack was rejected by every Christian publisher he sent his work to. But Jack was not a man who respected the rules of anyone other than God, so he stepped out on his own, ready to distribute his cartoon gore in the name of God, incidentally becoming the most widely read indie outsider artist in comic history. 
This is the final installment of our episode on Chick Tracts, where we will explore the reclusive life of Jack Chick the best we can with the very limited information available. We'll try to understand how his inflammatory work was shaped by his experiences, his family life, and the world around him. We'll look at the harm his belligerent conspiracy theories and moral panics have caused, but we'll also see how his work has been received by those with a certain fondness for the ridiculously malicious melodrama of his gaudy horror comics, including many of you who reached out and told us of your own experiences, with some of you even finding your very first one out in the wild over the course of this series, left in some random place by a stranger for someone just like you to find. And then, finally, we'll leave the paranoid, prejudiced universe that Jack created and will step into mine, where maybe everything could have turned out different, where maybe Jack, Chick, and I could have been friends. After the necessary instructions and suggestions are received from G2, a text is drawn up by one of the team's propaganda writers. Thousands of copies roll off the presses and are cut by machine. The packages are put into the plane's cockpit. However, before being dropped, bundles are split open so that the leaflets may scatter. Fighter bombers using special type bomb package containers carry thousands of copies far into enemy territory while carrying out regular... During his time as a cryptographer in World War II, Jack lived for three years in various countries occupied by the Imperial Japanese Army. Both the Allied forces and the Japanese military took part in psychological operations, which included the mass dissemination of cartoon propaganda. Hundreds of millions of leaflets were shot out from airplanes, exploded out and then sprinkled down over cities and jungles. The reason behind these pieces of propaganda was to incite fear and coerce soldiers to surrender or even turn citizens against their leaders. Their titles were things like, read this carefully as it may save your life or the life of a relative or friend. They often included gruesome cartoons, like images of skeletons in soldiers' clothes under the words, live or die, make your choice. One example showed a bloody mangled corpse in barbed wire that said, if you choose to resist, then under the beautiful tropical moon, only death awaits you. You have two alternatives, make your choice. Jack was living in the right places and at the right times to be exposed to these frightening pieces of propaganda, and in their words and pictures, we can see hallmarks of his future language around choice. But for him, it went beyond the choice of life or death into the question of eternal life or eternal death. 
of the bitter battle for Okinawa, costliest of the Pacific War. 360 miles from Japan itself, American equipment slogs through an endless sea of mud. For 82 days, over tough terrain and against a fanatic enemy, the Yanks have fought inch by inch to conquer this 60-mile-long island. Now the end is in sight. According to Jack, he never saw combat during World War II, though others have speculated, based on where he was at the time, that he may have been a witness to the bloodiest fight of the Pacific, though there's no direct evidence to support this claim. The Battle of Okinawa lasted 82 days, with more than 1,400 suicide planes hurled toward the Allied bases. On the other side, hundreds of Okinawan residents committed suicide rather than face whatever the Allied forces were planning to do. The battle produced 50,000 deaths of Allied troops and somewhere around 100,000 deaths of Japanese soldiers. Almost 150,000 Okinawan residents were killed or went missing. The atrocities committed during this time are beyond comprehension, unspeakable crimes against men, women, and children. As Jack's biographer stated, quote, God saved his life in the war. Almost every single friend he made was killed on the battlefield. Jack's work became steeped in the language of battle. His office was decorated with a sign on the door that read, The War Room. He called his independent distributors God's Army, whose job it was to attack and smash the gates of hell with the ammunition of his comics. Jack once said, quote, when I go out, I want to go out with honor, and I want to take as many with me to Christ as I possibly can. A few years later, he learned from radio broadcaster Bob Hammond about the comics used in Maoist Chinese propaganda. And the newly saved Jack realized that he, too, could explode bombs of his own propaganda across the entire world stage. In one issue of his Battle Cry newsletter, Jack writes that the year that he was saved, he ran into some friends that he knew growing up. He spoke to them about his conversion to Christ, and to his surprise, they told him that they'd been saved ever since childhood. He was shocked, furious that none of them had told him about Jesus Christ when they were all young students together. He writes that he told them, quote, I could have been killed in New Guinea or Okinawa and would have gone straight to hell. To which one of them replied, quote, Jack, we talked it over, whether or not to tell you about Jesus, and decided you would be the last guy on earth to receive him. Jack continued in the newsletter, I was speechless. I felt betrayed. If I had died, my blood would have been on their hands. In his authorized biography, the author writes, quote, Jack told me horrifying things about what servicemen did, first in New Guinea and later in Japan. 
Though these horrifying things are never specified, after Jack's hardline Christian conversion, the specifics didn't really matter. All that mattered was that before they died, his friends had not received Jesus as their savior. All that mattered was that if he died there, unsaved, on the battlefield beside them, he too would be burning forever in a lake of fire. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. And now back to the show. After he came to believe that admitting that Jesus died for your sins and repenting to him was the only ticket to heaven, Jack became a man focused almost singularly on the idea of forgiveness, but only this very specific kind, one that had nothing to do with worldly affairs. In his comics and books, There appears to be no need to make amends to the mortals that have been harmed by any of your destructive behavior. We can see an example of this in a tract titled Lisa, which was so egregious that even Chick Publications stopped printing it and scrubbed it from their website. I'm telling you, it's really fucked up. In the comic, we meet Henry, a man living deeply in sin, jobless but still demanding dinner from his overworked wife, Linda, and then spending the money she earns to keep up an addiction to pornography. One day, while he's home alone, his neighbor arrives at the door, and they watch some porn together. And that's when he tells Henry that he knows his secret, that he has been molesting his very young daughter, Lisa. But the neighbor says he'll keep his secret as long as he can also have access to Lisa. Henry agrees. 
Then we fast forward to Henry speaking to a doctor who tells him that Lisa has herpes and that she has told him all about the abuse by both Henry and his neighbor. But luckily, this isn't a regular primary care physician who has any regard for the health and well-being of children. He is a good Christian first and foremost, and he tells Henry that not only is he his doctor, but also his friend. That's when Henry cries out, I never meant for this to happen. It all started when my marriage began to fall apart. I lost my job and my wife had to go to work. I started drinking and my wife started pulling away from me. Linda doesn't have any respect for me anymore. I can't even make a decent friend. I guess I'm a total failure. But Henry argues with the doctor that he was always a good person before all of this happened. To which his doctor responds that even before he committed these acts against his daughter, he was going to hell anyway, since he had never accepted Christ as his savior. And so, seeking to avoid a horrific eternity in hell, Henry gets on his knees in the doctor's office and repents, giving his life officially over to Jesus. Then, a cartoon glow explodes behind him, and he says, I feel different, doctor. I feel clean. He says he no longer feels guilty for what he has done. He heads back home, smiling, light in the feet, opening the front door to his angry wife. But honey, Henry's got great news. He's just found Jesus, and now he's going to be the father God intended him to be. Linda responds, It's gotten to the point where I hate you, and I hate Lisa, but most of all, I hate myself. Henry, I'm not blind. I know what's been going on. I went through it myself years ago, thanks to my uncle. I just didn't want to believe it was going on in my home. I couldn't face it. That's why I've stayed away from you as much as I did. Henry responds, seeming to blame her, quote, But don't you see, Linda, that only made the situation worse. She asks the newly heroic Henry to help her know Jesus. And then finally, we see Lisa's face, scared, hopeful, tears welled in her eyes, holding a teddy bear. Linda says, we've got wonderful news, Lisa. Your daddy and I will never hurt you again. We love you, and Jesus does too. But after that, we never learn what actually happened to Lisa. All we are provided is a script to follow so that all of us can be forgiven, no matter how great or how small our sins may be. It makes no difference at all who has suffered. The heart of the story is about a sinner's 
beautiful, merciful redemption. The guilt he seemed to only feel once he was caught suddenly lifted, and his conversion by a good doctor whose only duty seemed to be to ensure that souls get to heaven, not to protect children from abuse, the collateral damage seeming to tidy itself magically. In another tract called Happy Halloween, we learn a hard lesson from a Sunday school teacher's speech bubble. Quote, Don't make the mistake of believing that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That's a lie straight from the devil. According to Jack's authorized biography, the only source we have, he came from a relatively non-religious family, cold and uncaring, both his parents clearly favoring his sister. His mother was cruel, even telling him that she tried to abort him multiple times. His father barely spoke to him at all, so Jack sought approval from his extended family members, who were Catholic, but there he only found more rejection. They mocked him, thinking it was a real kick to hear little Jack take the Lord's name in vain. When he would ask for a dish of potatoes across the table, they would make him say, using the words in his biography, quote, Please pass the potatoes, blankety-blank, which I think means God damn it. Then they would howl with laughter, something I imagine could have been the inspiration for the ha-ha's, H-A-W-H-A-W, that the evil characters guffaw throughout his work. I also imagine that this is the small seed that eventually grew into Jack's massive hatred for the Catholic Church. When he took this foul mouth to his schools, he claimed that it led to a lack of friends and a general sense among the student body that he was a bad boy to be avoided. Years later, after his conversion to Christ, aided by his new wife Lola's mother, Jack's father was embarrassed by his newfound fanaticism, and the first time he met Lola, he immediately told her, quote, Your mother sure as hell ruined my son. As he became more successful at Chick Publications, Jack asked his mother if she had read any of his comics. She told him that she couldn't because, quote, they're wrong for my eyes and the ink isn't good for my fingers. Jack knew that she wasn't telling the truth. She was also embarrassed by his new hyper-religiosity, especially after the L.A. Times takedown of Jack and his expert Alberto Rivera's alleged Catholic conspiracy theories. She requested that Jack not tell anyone who his mother was. His comics, first rejected by every publisher he sent them to, were eventually rejected also by Christian bookstores, and eventually rejected by entire countries, banned for hate speech. His intensity continued to prevent him from finding community in Christ, and he hardly, if ever, attended church. 
According to a good friend and former minister named Richard Lee, quote, the churches thought he was just another crackpot, and I think that really hurt his feelings. But Jack turned all this rejection around in his mind, believing that persecution proved holiness. And he began intentionally seeking to provoke anger in those that found his tracts. We can remember something he wrote in a newsletter, quote, I'm always asking my secretary if we have received new hate messages in the mail. If he tells me there isn't, then I worry and I start thinking that maybe I'm doing something wrong. Beloved, if no one hates you, you'd better ask the Lord if you are really in his will. But maybe it's more like this. If you give people a reason to hate you, to reject you, it won't surprise you when they do. It will no longer confuse you or hurt you. It will be your choice and it will be proof that you are good. But the heartbreakingly simple, childlike drawings in the tract, Somebody Loves Me, seems to betray some of the loneliness beneath Jack's alleged enjoyment of this rejection. It's presented with virtually no dialogue and opens on a house in the pouring rain. An angry, drunk father orders his small child to go out and beg for money. As the boy stands on a street holding out a cup, people pass him without notice, with only one passerby tossing in a single penny. When he returns home, sad and wet, his father flies into a rage, beating him and throwing him out of the house. Crawling into an alley, the child finds a cardboard box sitting beside a garbage can, and he lies down inside it and falls asleep. When he wakes up, the rain has subsided, and the wind blows a piece of paper to him, but the child can't read, grasping it upside down with a question mark hovering over his head. He holds it out to a young woman walking by, who looks at the card and tells him, Jesus loves you. Then, taking pity on him, she says she will go and get help. The child's big eyes well with tears. Jesus loves me, he says, clutching and kissing the card. But then we see his arm sticking out of the cardboard box, grasping at the air and then falling. A beautiful angel then appears, crouching down and looking into the box. In the final frame, we see this angel flying toward heaven, the child limp in her arms, bathed in light from above.
It's a rare kind of tract that makes me feel different from his other tracts. And according to Chick Publications, it's the one that has made the most hardened men weep, remembering the pain of their childhoods, the rejection that still lives inside their hearts. This tract is aching with sincerity, with a longing to be loved, with a kind of heartbreaking hope. It's one of the few that does not feel coercive, that uses no scare tactics, that threatens nothing. And it's one that makes sense in a way. When you're totally alone, it feels so good to know that you still might be loved in an ultimate kind of way. Jack was also a father and a husband, one who lost both his daughter before she turned 50 and his wife just a handful of years later after a lifelong illness, Jack being her primary caregiver. According to the author of his authorized biography, as well as testimonials from lifelong friends like his co-illustrator Fred Carter, his employees, and even the very few detractors who actually met him in person, Jack was nice. He was shy and gentle. He was funny, a hard worker, and a lover of his many dogs. As he got older, he wanted to get back to basics, and for years he worked with his co-artist Fred Carter on a feature-length animated film called The Light of the World that told the story of the Bible start to finish, with Fred creating hundreds of incredible paintings that are both uniquely beautiful and absolutely bizarre. As Jack was lying on his deathbed in 2016, he still continued to work, though his hands were failing him. His last idea for a tract cover showed a young woman bathed in light, her hands held up in glee at the bed of flowers in front of her, a little bird on a branch looking up at her. I've been unable to find literally anything about the money made by Chick Publications on the hundreds of millions of tracts, comics, and books that were allegedly sold. It doesn't appear, though, that Jack was in it for the money. There's no evidence of flagrant spending, no personal jets or yachts, no mansions with infinity pools like so many other famous men of God who were scamming their way through the decades that Jack owned his company. Up until his death in 2016, he lived in the same small house he purchased after the war using money from the GI Bill. There is one independent report that claimed that he liked to own a single Cadillac, but that he was embarrassed by the luxury. It does appear that he was not a charlatan but instead a true believer, for better or worse. 
I found no instance of him committing any crimes or being embroiled in any scandals the way his experts were, the predator John Todd, the fraudster Alberto Rivera, and the drug scammer Rebecca Brown. Those who it appeared he also naively believed were telling the truth. Because believing these people meant that he allowed them, even helped them, to get away with their crimes. Because to him, their crimes proved that there was a conspiracy against them, and thus a conspiracy against Jesus himself, and a conspiracy against Jack Chick. Even though he may have been acting from a place of sincere belief, may have been kind in his personal life, even though he had his rejections and his trauma, that doesn't make up, of course, for the worldly sins against living, breathing human beings. The propaganda tactic that he may have learned from a brutal war, the stories he told in accessible little cartoons he printed hundreds of millions of times, promoted dangerous conspiracy theories and moral panics against already vulnerable groups, and promoted the idea that doing bad things doesn't have to have consequences, and doing good works in this life means very little, if anything at all. Though mainstream televangelists rejected Jack and his laughably extreme ideology, his work still gave them some bright ideas, and they went on to profit from spreading the same inflammatory, fear-mongering narratives, from an Illuminati deep state to the lurid stories of evil homosexuals to the demonization of other religions to the satanic power of popular culture. I think there was a kind of trickle-down effect, the chick trickle, as I'll call it, his ideas watered down to become more palatable, more serious, and in that way, more dangerous. Journalist Sam Chris said this about Jack's work, quote, His cartoons were always so lurid, so gaudy, tactless, and fundamentally stupid that they were effectively defanged. All his poisonous ideology was neutered by the sheer silliness of its presentation. They were, each of them, a beautiful piece of fundamentalist kitsch. More after this. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now, back to the show. So now, whew, 
let's uh, shake all that off and let's revisit a bit of the joy we can still get from these pieces of defanged fundamentalist kitsch. In the 1991 comic titled Boo, Jack tries his hand at the popular medium of the time, the teen slasher, seeking to combine what looks like Friday the 13th, Halloween, Pumpkinhead, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Here we go. Our scene opens on a series of cabins in the woods, a banner announcing that this is Camp Basil Bub's grand opening. A teenage boy in a ball cap tells the first guy to arrive that they were able to rent the whole place for their high school class Halloween party, saying, Everybody who's anybody from Salem High will be there. With a worried look on his face, the teenager responds, Charlie, I know why you got this place so cheap. Why? Because last Halloween, 13 people were murdered here. What? Gasp. Did they get the killer? They riddled him with bullets, but they couldn't find his body. He must be dead. Then there's nothing to worry about. The gang should be here by dark. Boy, have I got a surprise for them. A sinister smile spreads across Charlie's face as he says, Carrie will sacrifice a cat to Satan at midnight. To which the other teen responds, What a way to end a party! Ha ha! On a far off hill, we see what looks like a man wearing a giant pumpkin on his head, watching as all the partygoers arrive at the camp in their cars. He says, while holding a snake on a leash, They're coming to celebrate my birthday. Rats! I forgot my chainsaw! In the next frame, marked Midnight, we see a table lined with candles and painted with a pentagram where a robed Charlie holds a knife above his head, a yowling cat held down by the other hooded teens. He booms. Oh, mighty Satan, we sacrifice this cat to you on your birthday. But then, suddenly, the pumpkin-headed murderer breaks down the door, wielding a chainsaw and growling out. I don't want the cat as my sacrifice. I want Carrie. The robed teens run out of the cabin screaming, He's killing everybody! With other voices echoing out from the cabin. Help! No! Then we cut to the local police station where a sheriff's deputy is shaking, saying into the phone, There's another massacre going down at Camp Bob. The chief, knocking over his cup of coffee, responds in a panic. Oh no! If it's the same killer, we'll need an army! Forty minutes later, the pumpkin-headed murderer is surrounded by three cops armed with pistols and a shotgun. Die, you fiend! They are riddling him with bullets, but he's not going down. Instead, standing tall and yelling back at them. You're next! 
Another cop cries out. What is it? And then the murderer grasps hold of the pumpkin and pulls it off his head, saying, Surprise! A cop yells to the others. Run! There's the devil himself! But then the chief notices. He's vanished into thin air! Another cop cries out. We've already got 19 dead. You've got to stop him, chief. He must be on his way to the village. May the saints preserve them. The devil then arrives outside the village church, peeping in the window, growling to himself. That little creep is praying when it's party time. The teenager then walks out of the church, and the devil approaches him, screaming like a banshee. But this is no regular teenager. This teenager has already accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And he says, Gasp! I rebuke you, Satan! I hate you and your lousy birthday! And that's all it takes. The devil hightails it away from the church under a huge, full moon, screaming. And disappearing into the night. We know from writer Daniel Rayburn's awesome article about Jack Chick, the imp number two, that in his office he had shelves of VHS tapes lining the walls, and along with Bible epics and old movies, he had also collected the entire franchise of Friday the 13th. I think one great and tragic irony of Jack's life is that his work has been most beloved by the kind of social rejects he considered satanic sinners, those who flocked to the horror genre, fans of outsider art, and fans of outsider artists like him. Chick tracts have spawned countless satirical homages, dozens if not hundreds of mock tracts mimicking his style, including ones by famous comic artists like Robert Crumb and Daniel Klaus, who recalled his first run-in with Jack's work like this, quote, I'd rather read these than pretty much anything else published in 1985. People have animated his tracts, even acted them out scene by scene in full costume with homemade special effects. There's a full-length movie version of his tract Dark Dungeons that warns of the dangers of Dungeons and Dragons. There's a great documentary called God's Cartoonist. There are numerous books exploring his work beyond his official biography. There are academic essays exploring his imagery. There are intricate, obsessive fan websites and online museums created to preserve his comics all from people who completely disagree with almost every message Jack ever tried to impart, while at the same time finding joy in their sincere absurdity, indie horror comics that broke every rule of the comic code. 
Over the last couple weeks, dozens of our listeners have reached out to tell us of their own experiences with chick tracts, many of whom didn't know these little booklets had a name, but were well acquainted with them nonetheless. There are those who were like me, secular teens who collected them purely for their parodyable, campy melodrama. One person wrote to us about how they used to alter the cartoons in irreverent ways and leave them for people to find, only to discover the same tract altered even more by another stranger who had left it in the same place, creating a kind of satirical conversation that continued back and forth. I heard from others who grew up in strict Christian communities and were given these tracts in earnest. One person who grew up in an oppressively strict fundamentalist school recalled that their weekly delivery of chick tracts was the singular joy that this school produced. And, banned from reading any other comics, they would sit in class and trace them again and again. Others have written to us to share that they were targeted by chickheads at their Catholic schools or their Jewish synagogues, or simply for looking gay. But they also shared that it was kind of hard to be offended by something so patently absurd. Another person even shared that it was Chick Tract's overblown ridiculousness that helped them realize that the fundamentalist religion that they had been pushed into was also ridiculous in and of itself. You see, for many of us, despite the ugliness of their messages, despite the scapegoats they made of most all of us, we still hoped to find them out there in the wild. And over the course of making this series, a handful of you have actually found them yourselves, left on a train, in a public bathroom, in a library, and at your workplace. It appears that even though Jack left this mortal world in 2016, Chick Publications lives on, and its propaganda continues to litter the earth. Another person recalled being thrown a Chick tract from a float during a parade in the 90s, and it scared them for weeks, just the way a horror movie might. There are so many things I could say about Jack Chick, a man who actively worked to demonize me and pretty much everyone I love, who promised a frightening hell for anyone who disagreed with his views. So, I'll say it. Fuck you, Jack Chick, for all the harm you caused, even if you never saw it that way even if you were a true believer. But I've gotten to know you so well, Jack Chick, that I keep coming back to this feeling that each of us are sometimes separated only by a moment, a sudden lightning crack that could have just as easily never struck. If Jack had never been converted by the words of a preacher on an old-time radio revival show, could things have been different?
When I am generous to Jack Chick, I think of him as an unrealized horror fanatic. His tracts transforming from maps to heaven into maps for a final girl looking to survive into the sequel. I see them becoming self-aware teen slashers, demonic possession blockbusters, post-apocalyptic flicks, cheesy monster movies, and sacrificial cult classics. Like the way Jack reshaped reality to create his own version, I keep coming back to this alternate universe that I have imagined. Maybe in this universe, I could have found Jack sitting next to me, both of us alone in some old movie theater, laughing and cheering too loud at a trashy sequel to our favorite unending horror franchise. Maybe the young Jack, the gifted drama student who set his sights on Hollywood, could have been a horror writer or director. Maybe he could have given us a campy satanic slasher series that, like Chick Tracts are, would have been beloved by rejects generations after they came out but without the resentment that will always accompany his bigoted work. Maybe he could have been like another William Castle, hosting horror movie screenings, conducting skeletons to fly over the crowd to gasps and screams, planting secret agents in the audience to melodramatically faint at the gore. In this universe, my universe. Jack Chick is happiest at the Halloween he swore he hated. I see him passing out king-sized candy bars to the neighborhood trick-or-treaters. I see his melting cartoon faces carved into long rows of glowing jack-o'-lanterns. I see his handmade decorations hanging ghoulishly in every window, a mini fog machine pouring menacing clouds down his front steps. I see a ten-foot skeleton left up year-round despite the complaints of his neighbors. Jack Chick never liked following the rules. At his best, I see him as the recluse he was, living way out on a solitary farm, preparing his extravagant haunted house each Halloween season, spending months making each room a masterpiece of the macabre, dressing ghouls and vampires and demons to stalk happy, screaming teenagers through a euphoria of horror. This was American Hysteria. Thank you so much for coming along on our first three-part series. I really hope you enjoyed it, and I really hope to do more series like this one. But it's not quite over yet, so make sure you stay tuned. 
If you want more of our show, if you want to get ad-free early episodes, head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria, where you'll also get access to Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show where producer Miranda and I tell you all the wildest stories that were cut from the episodes. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You'll also know that you're supporting our show. And another way you can support our show, and I highly encourage this, you could just really quickly do it right now, is leave us a five-star review on the app of your choice. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by your favorite satanic sinner, me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Our sound designer, who really brought it for this series, is Clear Camo Studios. Our research assistant is Riley Swadelius-Smith. Our producer and editor is Miranda Zickler. And our voice actor is Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Thank you for sharing your experiences with Chick Tracts. And please, keep your eyes open and let us know anytime you find one out in the wild. And maybe, if you're feeling creative, you can alter it yourself, create your own universe, and leave it for some stranger to find. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. May God richly bless you. Bye-bye.